You may be seated. Four through six, you are not dismissed uh, due to Adam not being here. Uh, we do not have four through six. So you're going to be hanging out with us in the service today, which I'm a little bit embarrassed that you're here because I have a big confession to make. Uh, just as a pastor, uh, you may not like it. You may confront me after service about this, but I like a good fight. I like a good fight. And so in seminary, I was mildly addicted to MMA, to UFC. And so I would study the word of God during the day. I would read about the mercy of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the gentleness of Jesus. And then at night, I'd want to watch two guys punch each other in the face. It was just, a, a, I don't know what it was. I'm not into it as much anymore, but I still like it. And I'll be honest with you, it wasn't the violence that really intrigued me about mixed martial arts. It was like the pageantry, the commitment to the sport, the technicality, the trash talk I kind of liked and thought was funny, and the scuffle-ups during the press conferences, coming to the ring and just thinking, man, what would it feel like to be in that position and getting in the ring and a stare down and being face-to-face with another fighter and then the bell ringing and then thinking, man, we're about to get to see just in the whole most holistic way possible who the better fighter is. And man, I just want to fight somebody right now. I'm just getting pumped up even talking about it. It's on my bucket list to be in a mixed martial arts competition. I would get destroyed is what would happen. In Colossians, a fight has been brewing between Paul and these false teachers who are propagating false teaching. In chapter one, there were some scuffle-ups. There were some punches thrown by Paul in their direction. In chapter two, the fight has started. The bell has rung. The gloves are off. Things are getting real. And what we're going to see as Paul confronts this false teaching, this heresy, is that we cannot be pacifists when it comes to teaching that is not in accordance with Christ, his person and work. We can't just take it in and receive it and then let it be. But we're also going to learn how to combat, how to fight such things, falsehood and empty philosophies. Turn to Colossians 2. Have your Bible in front of you, Colossians 2. We're going to underline some things. We're going to point out some things, and I just encourage you to come back and really chew on this passage later in the week. But in Colossians 1, 15 through 23, Paul really talked about the supremacy of Christ in that hymn. If you remember that rich theological hymn. Then in the next section, he talked about the gospel, the reconciling gospel of God that Paul had given his life to. And in light of those two things, Paul says this. We're starting in verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So here... Paul says, just as you've received Christ, walk in him. And we've seen this kind of language before in Colossians. This idea is when you receive Christ, when you put your faith and trust in him, Paul wants your life then to look a certain way, for you to be a certain type of person. That living faith will move you to live your faith out. 
And he uses language to talk about what that looks like, metaphorical language. He wants them rooted, this kind of tree language. He wants them built up. We can think of a building there. He wants them strengthened in their faith. He wants them abounding in thanksgiving. That's what this life looks like. And so in this first part of this section that we're looking at, Paul wants them to have a firm foundation. He wants them to build their life on who Jesus is and what it looks like to follow them, follow him. Because there are people that are going to try and shake that foundation. Look at verse eight. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So the fight has started. Paul starts attacking this philosophy. And in Paul's day, philosophy had a broad range of meanings. Josephus, an early Christian historian, actually called the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees a philosophy. So it was a a bigger meaning. So Paul isn't, I don't think Paul is making a blanket statement and criticizing those who study contemporary philosophy. I mean, if we don't study it, how can we ever intellectually interact with it? And so we need to be able to do that. He's attacking this particular philosophy that is empty and deceitful, that's based on human understanding, that comes from us but finds its origin in evil spiritual forces. He says, do not let your heart be led astray by this philosophy. And this philosophy in Corinth was multifaceted. There, there are a bunch of, it's a very hard philosophy to kind of pin down and say, this is exactly what was being taught because I don't think it falls under one big umbrella. I think it's a lot, it's a hodgepodge of heresies that are happening here. But there's two main themes in the Colossian heresy. One is they're gonna devalue the supremacy of Christ. So they're gonna take away from the supremacy of Christ and they're gonna discredit the sufficiency of the gospel. Those are the two themes that you're gonna see. And Paul says, this philosophy is dangerous. Look in chapter eight, it says, do not be taken captive. Underline that term captive. Now, when I think of the term like taken captive, I think of like, you know, somebody kind of being hit over the head like in a mob movie and putting a black thing over their face and kind of stealing them away by force. But when it comes to false teaching, we usually willingly go. We willingly let ourselves be taken captive because these teachings, they always promise us something. There's a carrot there, true knowledge, spiritual fulfillment, lasting peace and salvation, you know, some extra thing that we can do outside of the gospel to help us be free from sin and to find salvation. Years ago, I made this video with my children and little did I know that it would illustrate how false teaching actually works. Baby, would you listen to me? 
Hey, Ruby. Deep stuff here at Creekside Bible Church in the morning. But what a great picture. There were fruit snacks in there. And it was so easy to trap her. And my son thought it was the funniest thing in the world. We need to remember that anything made from human hands or driven by evil spiritual forces cannot save us. They can only capture us. The evil forces behind these philosophies, we know from Scripture that they seek to disqualify you. They seek to control you and enslave you. And obedience doesn't lead to greater freedom when you submit yourselves to these philosophies. It it leads to greater enslavement. And so Paul tells us not to be passive when it comes to teaching that is not according to Christ. And against this threat, Paul combats this heresy. Now look at verse 9. We're going to read 9 through 10. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus is fully God in fully human form, and we have been filled with him. God has decisively and exhaustively revealed himself to us in Christ Jesus. We have everything we need in Jesus. We need no other teaching to become like God. We need no other teaching to be saved, to find purpose and peace. Furthermore, he is has authority, Jesus has authority. He is the head over all of these forces, over all of these entities. This empty philosophy gaining steam in in this church was rooted in and focused on evil forces. The Colossians were most likely being told by the false teachers to live in fear of the demonic realm and work to protect yourself from such things. And in doing so, they were actually devaluing the supremacy of Christ by focusing on these other things, which is really what a lot of false teaching does, which we're going to talk about in a second. But Paul's saying, don't listen to those knuckleheads. Jesus is over everything. Do you remember chapter one? He creates everything. He sustains everything. He has authority over everything, including these elemental demonic forces that the Colossian church was fearing. And the same Jesus who has power over these entities indwells us and empowers us to have similar authority. So here is how you can fight false teaching. You come back to the person of Christ, the one whom in the fullness of deity dwells, the one who indwells us and gives us everything we need in Christ, including courage and authority over the elemental forces of the world. We fight false teaching by coming back to the exalted Christ. We fight false teaching by coming back to the exalted Christ. But we also fight it by coming back to what he has done for us. We're going to look at the next section, which seems like a theological detour. It's like he switches from combating heresy to theological truth. And so we're going to unpack this section, 
And then we're gonna talk about why uses this next section as part of his argument and how he uses it. So look at verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision, underline circumcision made without human hands, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, underline baptism there, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with them, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So Paul uses two metaphors to explain what Christ's death and resurrection has accomplished for us. He uses circumcision and baptism. Now, as a pastor, when I was in a seminary, I couldn't wait to talk about with my congregation circumcision. And so if you're a child in here, if you're fourth through sixth, and you don't know what that is, ask your parents. It'll be a real fun car ride home. And so, uh, but he uses circumcision and, and, and circumcision was a way for God to mark his people off, to separate his people. It was a sign of the covenant between God and his people, Israel. But even in the Old Testament, circumcision was already being used as a metaphor. In Deuteronomy and Jeremiah, it talks about the circumcision of the heart. And it's that non-physical circumcision, the one not done with human hands. It's that non-physical circumcision that Paul has in mind here. So here's what Paul is saying. Human nature has been corrupted and enslaved by sin. Human nature has been corrupted and enslaved by sin. And so Paul envisions Christ coming in and cutting off, circumcising that body ruled by sin when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. When we put our faith in Christ, we are no longer enslaved to sin and death. Amen? When we put our faith in Christ, sin and death are no longer our master. We may mess up, but we don't have to. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we'll talk about here in a second, We can actually fight sin. We can put it to death. And then he quickly switches with baptism. He uses baptism as a metaphor. And it seems to imply here that baptism saves us. Look at verse 12 again. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Does does baptism save us? I was at a coffee shop once in school when I was helping plant of church. And I don't know if I was, I'd, I'd hang out at coffee shops a lot. I probably smelled like coffee for a good three years. And I was there and studying, doing something, working. And I hear this older lady speaking to a gentleman who it looked like wasn't really comprehending what she was saying. But this older lady was, all I heard from her was, it was baptism, baptism. You, to be saved, you have to be baptized. To be saved, I mean, it's just baptism. You got to get baptized in the church, then you will be saved. And I'm sitting there looking down at my books, and I'd just gotten there. I probably planned on being there for three or four hours, and I'm like, I can't sit here and, and let this happen. And so I got all my things together, and I'm like, I'm going to confront this, and I'm just going to kind of get out of here. I don't want to make a big scene 
with what seemed to be a crazy older lady. And, and so I didn't want to get in that. I don't like fighting that much to, to where. And so I, I walk up to her and I have my Bible and I tell her to, to read something. I say, can you read Acts 16.30? Can you read Acts 16.30? And so she pulls out the Bible, and in front of this guy, she reads at 16 and 30. Well, here's, here's what's in Acts 16 and 30. The Philippian jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? And all Paul says is, believe in Jesus Christ. And I looked at this guy, so this lady said that, and I looked at this guy, and I said, it's not about baptism it's about putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then I pulled out a microphone and I dropped it. And I ran out of there. <laughs> I kind of I got out of there because I was like, I don't want to make a scene. Well, then I start feeling guilty. <laughs> and I'm like, man, I should maybe give that guy a card, one of my cards, just if he needs follow-up or if he has more questions. And, and I go back in. Well, when I go back in, the, this woman's son is there who's probably about 10 years older than I am. And he stands up like he wants to fight me. And she puts his hand back, and I just punched him in the f- I didn't do that. <laughs> I didn't do that. I just gave the guy a card, and I got out of there. But, but the idea is baptism doesn't save you. Faith in Jesus does. And Paul is using baptism as a metaphor here a spiritual metaphor, what Christ did physically through his death and resurrection has been imparted to us spiritually because we are in him. Being buried with Christ. This is the picture of baptism, being buried with Christ. We have died to our sin. Sin and death no longer reign over us. But through the miraculous work of the Spirit, we have been forgiven of that sin and we have been resurrected with Christ. We have been made alive. We have been forgiven and reconciled to the source of all life. So now we can actually obey God. We can choose holiness with the help of the Spirit. We can live for Him that new life. And we get to live that new life forever. That is what Paul says has been done for you. But he goes on, there's more. Look at verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. A record of debt was like an IOU. So Paul is kind of imagining humanity writing to God an IOU. God, we pledge to you our complete obedience. Signed, humanity. The problem is, is that IOU actually became our death warrant because we possibly couldn't fulfill that commitment. And so what Paul is is saying is that when Jesus died on the cross, that list of sins, that debt we owed, that list he just burned up. And if you think about it, that was one of Satan's major tools against us, is to waive that, that list of debt, 
that list of your sin in front of you to make you feel terrible. You're not good enough and you never are going to be. And so it says here that God actually disarmed him. He, he took that weapon away from Satan and he conquered him and destroyed his power over us. All of this has been done through Christ for you. So what does this have to do with false teaching? Paul is emphasizing everything Jesus has already accomplished for us because the Colossian church was hearing over and over again, the gospel isn't enough. There's more to do. These false teachers as we see next week, we're piling on rules and rituals, whether they, whether they were ascetic practices like self-denial, potentially even self-mutilation and things like that, or ritual observances of holidays and festivals. There was a Jewish element there, and they were saying, if you follow these rules, then and only then will you find fulfillment. Then and only then will you be freed from your sinful nature. Then and only then will your salvation be complete. But Paul is saying this, your salvation is complete already. You have already been freed from your sinful nature. You are no longer ruled by the flesh. Its power has been cut off in your life. You have already been forgiven. You have already been made alive. Everything you need has been done in Christ Jesus. Stop adding more. We fight false teaching by coming back to the exalted Christ, but also by coming back to his sufficient work. We fight false teaching by coming back to the exalted Christ and his sufficient work. And the more you see the different types of theological errors out there, the easier they are to combat because what they do today, they did 2,000 years ago. Sorry, 2,000 years ago. They either took away from the supremacy of Christ, where they added to the sufficiency of the gospel. And so if you're doing basic arithmetic with core theological truth, you're going to find yourself in trouble. It's easy with heresy to take away from the supremacy of Christ. It's what these teachers were doing. They were claiming that other spiritual entities have ultimate sway over our daily lives and we must appease them. That, that teaching, it takes away from Jesus's authority to claim that Jesus is just a messenger. He's a man and nothing else. That is to take away from his divinity. To say that Jesus is just one of the million of other gods that people can find salvation in, that takes away from his supremacy. Every heresy in some way or another seeks to make Jesus less. And here's the problem, is a lesser Jesus cannot save you from Satan, sin, and death. 
Furthermore, there's a group that adds to the gospel, the sufficiency of the gospel. You're going to hear pastors and denominations say that you have to be baptized. You have to go through this ceremony or ritual. You have to practice this rite. You have to read your Bible this many times. You have to show up to church. You have to look this way and jump through these hoops and bark twice in order to be saved and find fulfillment in Christ, to find freedom from sin in Christ. Now, most of us in this room are going to say, Amen. The gospel is sufficient for me. But do you really believe that? And here's what I mean. For much of my life, (laughs) I have served God. I've regularly attended church. I've been generous. I've sacrificed my time with maybe a subconscious thought that if I did those things well, then and only then would God truly accept me and love me and care for me and be for me. There's two problems with living that way. One is you're essentially looking at God and you're saying, the death of your son Jesus, the blood of Christ, wasn't enough to save me. And so I need to make up for what is lacking. We're essentially saying the cross wasn't enough. Number two, that gospel plus, that, you know, gospel plus something will not sustain you. You will burn yourself out. You will crash and burn trying to be enough because you'll never feel like you are enough. That gospel will enslave you. It will kill you. It will shipwreck you. And so Paul loved this Colossian church and he wanted them to thrive. He didn't want their faith to shipwreck or to veer off. He wanted them to stay true to the gospel. He wanted them to press on and push forward and thrive. And as a pastor and an elder of both Creekside and Central, I want these churches to thrive. I want you to press on. And it only happens, it only happens when we say the gospel is sufficient for us. The gospel is enough in our our acts of service, our, our love for others, our commitment to missions in the city and the world. It's not, we're not trying to make up for what is lacking in the gospel but all of those things are a loving response to it. Guys, there are books and pastors out there taking things away from Jesus and adding things to the gospel. Just because it says Christian book and gift doesn't mean that book is inerrant. There's a lot of junk out there, guys. Just because he's a pastor online doesn't mean that what he is saying is true, even if he's good looking, even if his shoes are $300. Never trust a man with $300 shoes. We need to be careful about what we're taking in. In verse eight, it says, see to it that no one takes you captive, including myself. 
evaluate what you're hearing, compare it to God's word. And the idea of, of see to it, that no one takes you captive. The idea here is to take heed, be aware, be alert. In fight language, it would be keep your guard up. Don't drop your hands. Keep your guard up and be ready so that you don't get taken down by false teaching. And you know that punch is coming when that false teaching claims that Jesus is less and the gospel isn't enough. Amen? Let's pray.